Thanks for tuning in and welcome to this, the first BSG Uncut podcast. I'm Martin Hirsch and today we're joined by two amazing guests here to discuss laparoscopic cerclage. Mez Aref Adib is a consultant gynaecologist and obstetrician at Whips Cross Hospital, Bart's Health. After qualifying from Cambridge University in UCL, Mez took the scenic route in training in North East London, including a year fellowship in laparoscopic and hysteroscopic surgery in Melbourne under Associate Professor Alex Adez. Mez is currently on the subcommittee for the BSG Scope, and she's interested in research, teaching, and particularly training. In her role as a trainer, she's set up a successful laparoscopy course in both Melbourne and Newham that runs annually. Mez is a facilitator on our BSG Rigs program here in the UK. Ertan Saradogan is consultant in gynaecology, reproductive medicine, and minimal access surgery at University College London Hospitals. He's a former president of the British Society of Gynaecological Endoscopy and is current member of the European Society for Gynaecological Endoscopy Executive Committee as the chair of the scientific programme of the annual Congress. Please join him this year. He is also a member of the ESHRAE Endometriosis Guideline Development Group and he is current editor of Facts, Views and Vision, a journal of the European Society of Gynaecological Endoscopy. On a personal note, Mez was the first person to teach me a caesarean at North Middlesex in, back in circa 2010, and Ertan, who needs no introduction really, the legend of the laparoscope, who taught me the laparoscopic cerclage at UCLH. It's an honour to speak with you both, and the webinar we just listened to was amazing. For those that didn't catch it live, well, I'm sorry you missed out. But Mez and Ertan, do you think you can dive straight in and tell us how you found the webinar? Um, I mean, I thought it was brilliant because I got to sit and listen to two world experts talk. Um, I thought Alex's was really nice with really nice videos. And what I loved about Professor Saradogan's was to see the same really excellent outcomes, but with surgery done almost in an easier way that I want to try and do now myself. So, um, yeah, I thought it was brilliant. And I hope that uh, people at home found it useful as well. And... Uh... I suppose the webinar highlighted that uh, this technique is, is for a highly selected group of women. And there is probably a group of women who fall into the gray area uh, where we uh, do not know whether transvaginal surplus or transabdominal surplus um, would fit better. Excellent. And Mez, you touched upon um, the different techniques, but if we can go back a little bit, as we, we may have some non-medical listeners to this podcast, uh, could you briefly explain what a laparoscopic cerclage is and why a patient might need one? Uh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to do that. So essentially, a cerclage is a surgical procedure that happens either before pregnancy or during pregnancy. Um, it can be done vaginally or laparoscopically or open. So small cuts on the tummy or a bigger cut on the tummy. And the idea is to put a stitch around the cervix or the neck of the womb to support the cervix and then reduce the risk of an early birth. Now, the reason that is we want to reduce that risk is that people who cervix opens up when it's not meant to may then end up having a miscarriage in the middle of pregnancy or an extremely preterm baby. And then obviously having a miscarriage is very distressing and having a preterm baby has its own risks because babies that are born preterm have problems with things like temperature regulation, breathing, regulation of their blood sugars, but also more serious things like brain injury, blindness and death. So um, the stitch is there to prevent that happening. Now, the important thing is, is 
um, as Professor Sarah Dogan was saying before, is to select the correct patient. So why would a patient need to have this stitch put around their cervix? Um, essentially, the stitches need to be put in women who have had losses um, and their cervix is short and that can be done vaginally and that's usually done when they're pregnant. So when they get pregnant, then they can have a vaginal stitch put in. Now, laparoscopic cerclage, keyhole or an open cerclage, the stitch around the cervix sits higher up. And that is done in a very specific group of women, women who, for example, might not have a cervix because they've had cervical cancer and their cervix removed or their cervix has been um, removed if they've had multiple procedures on it or in the past they've had a transvaginal cerclage and it's failed. So though that highly specific group can then have it done by keyhole surgery. Now that keyhole surgery can be done as what's called an interval cerclage, i.e. before they're pregnant or in early pregnancy. Um, it's much more technically difficult and has higher risks in early pregnancy. So we prefer to do it pre-pregnancy. So that's the difference really, the, the major difference between having a laparoscopic cerclage and a vaginal cerclage is that vaginal cerclages are done after the woman's pregnant and had a lot of the time the combined tests and we know that everything's okay in that early window, whereas a laparoscopic cerclage is most often done before pregnancy and so the woman may not then even get pregnant. So that's something to think about. I hope that's clear. That was fantastic. Thank you. It was a, re a really clear explanation of what it is and why it's used. And I see many patients in clinic that have had abnormal smears in the past and maybe they've had treatments such as a loop excision or a small amount of their cervix removed. Can you give any advice to that, that group of patients as to which patient might benefit from a cerclage before ever trying for a pregnancy and which patient might not? Um, yeah, that's that's another very good question. Now, the truth is, is that those women should, so once they've had their treatment, be given advice by the person doing the treatment so that they know exactly what they need to say when they come back. So depending on how much of the cervix is taken off, when I do um, LETS procedures, I might tell the patient to have a cervical length scan kind of a few months later after they um, to check the length of the cervix. And then we can decide according to that. Now, the Again, usually women who've had one procedure will just have cervical length scans in pregnancy. So most hospitals have preterm birth clinics and those patients who've had maybe one procedure or two procedures will be referred to these preterm birth clinics where they have the length of their cervix checked during pregnancy so that they can have a vaginal cerclage. Now the other group of patients who have no cervix, for example they have had what's called a trachelectomy, their whole cervix removed because of um, cervical cancer. Now, they're a special group. And usually after they've had their treatment, they will be followed up and they will be told where to go to to discuss having a laparoscopic cerclage. Excellent. Thank you. So it, it's not every patient that's um, had a treatment to their cervix. It's a select group of patients based exactly. on, based on the uh, clinician that's seen them and perhaps treated them. Exactly. And I really don't want to worry people um, who you know have one treatment because um, actually the, the studies coming out now from colposcopy data show that if actually you've had less than a centimeter taken off your chances of preterm birth are quite similar. In the past the statistics we would quote would be that you'd have about a seven percent background risk of preterm birth that is any birth before 37 
weeks and we say that goes up to about 11% but newer studies are actually showing that if you take less than a centimetre which the majority of women have sometimes you might need to have more than a centimetre of your cervix taken out but the, the risks are actually the same as the background risk so seven or eight percent so please I just anyone listening um, I don't want them to worry that they've had a treatment on their cervix and they need a suture the majority don't Fantastic. Thank you. It's, it's really reassuring. And for those that have had miscarriages that are listening, perhaps it's obviously a very distressing and, and, and heartbreaking situation to go through. Are there any specific miscarriages that you're referring to um, that are at greater risk of um, or would require a circlage? Um, yeah, so um, it, that's a very good question. So essentially, anyone who's had a miscarriage, again, should be followed up by their hospital where they've had the miscarriage in the mid trimester. So between you know 13 or more weeks, and um, they should have clear follow up plans of what needs to be done in their next pregnancy. I think women who've had recurrent mid trimester losses or who've had a loss, and then in their next pregnancy have had a stitch vaginally and that still failed then and they've unfortunately either lost the pregnancy or had a very early um, preterm birth then they should definitely be sent to specialist centers and in the um, webinar professor sarah dogan was saying that these procedures should be done in you know centralized places so that we have the data and these women really should be seen pre-conception in the next pregnancy by specialists who can perform the procedure and then they can go through the risks and benefits and see whether they're suitable and whether it's necessary because the you know the other thing you have to think about it is that it is laparoscopic surgery it does come with risks it does have um, complications so it's not for everyone but for those women who are ever unsure or don't think that they've had follow-up by their hospital after they've had um, either a very early preterm birth or um, a mid-trimester loss they can either see their GPs and be referred to obstetricians or gynecologists for preconception counselling that's before they conceive so that they can make a plan and usually most of those things should be in place Fantastic. That, that, that's brilliant advice uh, for those uh, patients that might be listening. Obviously, in this situation, a uh, multidisciplinary approach is, is important. When I say multidisciplinary, probably I'm referring to different expertise areas within obstetrics and gynecology. Um, you know, we are uh, separating special interests in obstetrics and gynecology. Some of us are ex experienced in gynecology, i.e. are experts in putting laparoscopic stitches, but we are not necessarily experts in preterm birth. Uh, so we need to bring this expertise together. Uh, obstetricians with an interest in preterm birth should work with minimal access surgeons or laparoscopic surgeons um, in looking after these women. And in addition, probably we need to collaborate with um, our um, clinic uh, specialists as well because some of the patients will be originating from there as well. So that collaboration is extremely important so that women get the best advice possible. Yeah, I completely wholeheartedly agree with that as well. Fantastic. It sounds like a kind of a combined collective approach to treating patients that have uh, gone through a very difficult experience it is the best way forward. Um, Ertan, if we could briefly touch upon the complexities of the surgery and the differences in the techniques that yourself uh, and Alex uh, refer to uh, in the 
the webinar we just listened to. Can you briefly describe them and talk through the merits of both of them? Why should we use your technique as surgeons? Yes. So, first of all, uh, there are a number of approaches uh, that we can use for laparoscopic circulage. Um, this evening, we've seen two of them in the webinar. Uh, so, in Alex's technique, um, obviously, um, the uterovesical peritoneum is opened and a small window is made in the broad ligament lateral to the uterine vessels um, so that that window is used to place the sutures on the right and left of the cervix at isthmic level. So this is clearly a significant amount of dissection in that area and it, it requires a, a significant level of expertise in um, laparoscopic surgery as well as working in that area um, <clears throat> and I I do think it has a, a clear advantage in putting the stitch during pregnancy because you are not so much reliant on manipulating the uterus. In our technique, technique is very very simplified uh, and there is minimal dissection, uh, there is no need to uh, reflect the bladder. Uh, you need to make a small amount of dissection in the uterobasical peritoneum to expose the uterine vessels and uh, place the suture just medial to the uterine vessels. So it's the simplicity, I think, is, is the uh, biggest advantage and probably reduces risk of complications um, <clears throat> in that sense. But a disadvantage that it's heavily reliant on manipulation of the uterus, moving it back and forth, and is probably uh, less suitable for placing the suture during pregnancy. There are other examples, as, uh, other approaches, as I mentioned. Um, so I think we need to develop a technique that we feel confident and comfortable with and, um, and make the procedure as safe as possible. Do you feel this um, surgical procedure should be offered in, in most hospitals across the UK or do you think there's a, a role for centralisation of, of care and referring women into specific hospitals that do the procedure with a slightly heavier workload perhaps to improve the expertise? Centralising these services is important. There aren't that many patients who will need laparoscopic circulage procedure and to build up experience and maintain that level of ex expertise, uh, it is important to centralize these services uh, so that there is a certain amount of workload. Um, you saw my figures um, during the webinar. Um, I receive referrals from around London as well as outside London, uh, as far as kind of Liverpool, Manchester. Um, but in the last uh, 16, 17 years, I only did 85 procedures. So uh, that is around um, six, seven a year. So if everyone starts doing the procedures, then, then they'll probably be doing one or two procedures per year. And that's probably not enough to maintain the level of experience. And the other thing is, is patient selection. I think. Um, in a way that we are the technicians, well, at least I should be speaking on, on my behalf. Um, I am not an expert in preterm birth, so I place the suture 
in women who have been referred by preterm birth specialists or experts. Um, so again, this needs to be uh, provided by expert centers, not in all hospitals. So kind of we need to create teams uh, who will be able to provide this expertise where uh, input from preterm birth specialists as well as minimal access surgeons um, is available. Fantastic, thank you. And hopefully with the introduction of the HPV vaccine, there'll be less people requiring cervical treatments to reduce the role or the requirement for this procedure in the future. Uh, but one, one of my thoughts was, do you think that the low number of procedures that you've done over the past 14, 15 years is, is due to the low number of patients requiring, or is there perhaps an element of of services not being aware of the role of the service that's provided by yourself at UCLH? It's probably a bit of both. Um, I'm aware that uh, there is still some skepticism about uh, laparoscopic surgery um, because there are colleagues who believe uh, placing the suture at open surgery is uh, better uh, and I think this is probably one area that where we should um, uh, explore further. And the data, if you look at data uh, from the presentations you saw earlier and also published data, actually it does show in experienced hands, in centers of expertise where laparoscopic surgery is performed regularly, the results are outcomes are as good as open surgery. So in that sense, uh, I think uh, these patients should be probably be moving towards laparoscopic surgery uh, when they are receiving uh, this service. So the other issue is that yeah, at the end of the day, these are highly selected group of women. Uh, so uh, there is probably a much bigger number of patients who do have transvaginal surplus, uh, so the numbers are likely to remain relatively low. So we're not going to have huge numbers in each hospital. Can I can I just add to that as well, um, Martin? Because you were saying, is it because people now know as well? I think that's quite interesting because when I was in Australia, um, over an eleven-year period, Alex had performed two hundred twenty-five, and in today's data. So I left in 2018, so three or four years, he's now done over 400. And I think that's not just because he's picking people, I hope, um, off the street and doing collages for them. It's because patients are finding him. Um, a high number of them are on groups for preterm loss, repetitive preterm losses. And that's why people from everywhere come to him. And because more people are talking about it and it's more publicized, they're then seeking help either in the private hospital or in the public hospital. So I think what you were saying um, in addition about people being more aware of the options of this procedure being done is also adding to the numbers. I think you touched on a fantastic point there about the, the ability for social media to harness positive change uh, and for people to become aware of services on the other side of a country that perhaps aren't available to them where they live locally. Hopefully this podcast and the webinar will help raise awareness for this procedure and help kind of provide options for people to consider if they are suffering with the, the, the terrible and atrocities that are associated with recurrent pregnancy loss or, or mid-trimester loss and, and preterm birth.
Erton, you mentioned the you know rapid progression of circlage and its um, increasing evidence supported by the Maverick trial published back in in 2020 in, in AJOG. And Mez, your, your data presented in the uh, Australian Journal. What further trials or research evidence do you think is required? Um, and where do you see laparoscopic circlage in, in 10 years' time, for example? I think the Maverick trial was amazing. Maverick trial, for those of you who haven't read it, um, essentially chose women who'd had a failed vaginal cyclage and managed to randomise them into either an open transabdominal cyclage, a high vaginal cyclage, or a low vaginal cyclage. So bearing in mind, these are women who have failed their vaginal cyclages, willing to go in a trial to retry a vaginal cyclage. So to find those women who would accept that, because I, I don't, I just don't know if I would personally be one of those even though obviously that's the kind of data we need um is is very interesting and that's exactly what we need now the only thing with the um maverick trial was that it didn't have laparoscopic cyclage and that all of the cyclages were placed in pregnancy so you can say that it was comparing like with like with like what we really need is that same trial but pro but comparing laparoscopic cyclage to vaginal cyclage. But you know, as we said before, the majority of laparoscopic cyclages are done pre-pregnancy, so we'd be comparing quite not exactly like with like. But to find those women over that time period that agreed to have it is just amazing. And the data you know, was undeniable that having an abdominal cyclage significantly reduced the preterm birth rate before 32 weeks for those women who have previously had a failed one. So essentially, they should, if you've had a failed vaginal cyclage, i.e. you've unfortunately had a mid-trimester loss or you've had a very early preterm birth, um, then you should be looking at having one form of abdominal cyclage. The other area, uh, Martin, that will probably be interesting to explore is, is the grey area that I mentioned earlier, patients who have had um, mid-trimester losses um, and whether these patients should have uh, transvaginal circulation in future pregnancies or they should be offered to have an abdominal circulation. So as, as I mentioned during the presentation, Cochrane review does not actually show an obvious benefit of circulation in this group of women, uh, regardless of the length of the cervix. So the other thing following on that is that Maverick trial does show abdominal circulage is clearly better than transvaginal circulage in that situation uh, or in, in, in a similar situation. So it is quite possible that laparoscopic circulage would clearly so show an advantage or abdominal circulage would clearly show an advantage uh, compared to doing nothing in this group of women who have had one or more mid-trimester losses and this is an area that will need to be explored. I agree with Professor Sardogan that it might be really helpful in women who've just had one miscarriage or two you know, mid-trimester losses without trying a vaginal cyclage. Lovely, fantastic, Th thanks so much. Um, so if we move on to life out of work, I know a lot of members and, and patients out there probably want to know a little bit behind the characters that they see in the webinar and that they hear and read about um, online. So Mez, we start with you. You spent some time with Alex in Melbourne uh, during your final few years of training. Can you give us a brief summary of, of how you found that, whether you'd recommend it to other training doctors uh, and what you learnt? Um, yeah, no, definitely. I 
was really fortunate to have spent a year with Alex in um, in Melbourne in 2017. My husband had a robotic fellowship um, in urology and so I told him I would only come if I had a good job and was very lucky that I went for an interview um, on Skype and got this really fantastic job with an amazing surgeon and basically had fun every day that sounds so cheesy but it's the truth and rented a house by the beach and made so many friends everyone was really nice to us really warm and yeah it was I mean I was highly highly recommend it um I did obviously miss my family and friends back home but my mum did come three times while I was out there in a year so I'm not sure how I would have coped with Covid um, but I would definitely definitely say that if you get a chance then go I mean I think people said to me I, I went with um, two children five and seven and they were like oh you're gonna uproot and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and try to not pass off well yeah try to pass off to be honest um, and I just think that it, it was like a once in a lifetime opportunity for us and um yeah i would highly recommend doing it sounded like a uh, fantastic opportunity for you out there and um for those who don't know i've worked with both mez and your mum mez in at the royal london <laughs> hospital and I, I'm, I'm surprised that she wasn't out there for more time she she came through, i think three times is a lot but she also said she couldn't part, drive past my house and then she nagged me to come back constantly she moaned about it constantly so i was um you know Oh, people said please stay stay here we'll we'll make a job we'll do this and she basically told me there was absolutely no way that I was going to stay in Australia and I was to come back <laughs> brilliant that sounds uh, exactly like um the Mrs. Ski or Shore that I, that I know from the Royal London Hospital <laughs> uh, Tam, moving on to you and, and thinking about your, your wider career um wh what's inspired you the most who's inspired you the most and what led you into women's health in terms of women's health choice, um, it wasn't actually a particular person as such. Um, it was the desire to have the combination of medicine and surgery together. You know, initially I was attracted to be a physician, but then when I started doing my surgical electives, then I said, mm, no, I don't want to just do pure medicine. I would like to do something that combines it. And I found it in women's health. Uh, and, and, you know, that is, I'm still doing that, you know, my combination of reproductive medicine and minimal access surgery, the ideal job title that I eventually achieved. And uh, obviously, when I started doing my first specialist training in Istanbul, um, I had a professor Atatsu who, who obviously inspired me a lot with his overall personality and attitude to medicine and and our discipline so um uh, that i i would like to mention him and uh, the last person that i would mention is is uh, some of you uh, would be familiar with is late tony weeks who actually mentored us in our early careers when we were doing our specialist training uh, at harold wood hospital in romford um, he's no longer with us, sadly, but uh, his legacy lives because he's contributed to many of the senior minimal access surgeons that you come across around around the UK at present. Thank you for giving us a, a, an insight into um, you know what and, and who's driven you to become the um, expert and world, world leader you are today. Um, if we're thinking a bit outside the workplace, um, 
and this is a final question, so won't be keeping you too much longer. Um, but we've all been cooped up uh, for the past 18 months and, and dreaming of life as, as we once knew it. Um, and I, I promised myself that I wouldn't mention the, the C word. Um, but can you both give us a, a quick insight into the holiday or experience that you've been dreaming of uh, since we all got locked down, uh, who it's going to be with and what you're going to be doing on that, that dream trip. I'm going to be really cheesy uh, and you're all going to be like vomiting. But essentially, I started my dream job in February 2021 at Webb's Cross Hospital. And I feel like I'm really lucky that I, lo- I can get to go to work and do something so fun with such nice patients and other staff. So that's really cheesy. And I haven't actually wanted a holiday until last week where we went to Dorset and it was 40 degrees. It was the Costa del Dorset. Um, and it was just, it was so nice. And next week, I'm off with my family for probably a washed-out Chichester holiday to celebrate turning 40. And so all I can say is that I hope that we all make it there safely without needing to self-isolate and that it doesn't rain every day for seven days, including my 40th, and that I eat lots of cake. So it's quite a small fry, um, but that's what I'm looking forward to. Thank you, Maz. And and I, I usually... Um, do a summer holiday with my sons uh, in our home country, Turkey, and we haven't been able to do it last two years. And um, it doesn't look as if that I'll be able to do it this year. So I'm looking forward to the next time, uh, whenever it might be, that I can actually do the same and go away with my sons. Fantastic. Nice. Thank, thank you for uh, you know sharing some some personal dreams and personal goals as well as obviously the the wealth of knowledge that you've been able to share in the webinar and also on, on the podcast today i'd like to say uh, a big thank you for being the first guests on the bsg uncut podcast um, that will be hopefully coming out on a monthly basis um, and uh, if you have any final words or closing remarks or, or any events coming up that you'd like to plug uh, please go ahead I just want to say, I actually really enjoyed the podcast. I was like, what are they going to ask me? I don't know anything. But actually, it was really fun. And to be on a platform with, um, well, a legend and another legend in the making, um, I'm very honoured and it was really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maz. Yes, uh, thank you, Maz uh, and Martin, uh, for organising the webinar as well as the podcast. I'm sure it will be much appreciated. Thanks again to our guests, Ertan Saradogan, and Mez Arafadib and uh, please join us next time for the second episode of the BSG's Uncut podcast.